Welcome back to another Club Sports 10-Bit More podcast. My guest today is Tosh Farrell, a renowned youth development coach who used to work with Everton and the likes of Wayne Rooney, who's going to provide a great insight to the development of youth players from both back home in England and here in North America. Indeed, the conversation that we enjoyed went on quite a bit, and so this podcast has been split into two smaller chunks. So please, listen today, find out the secrets of Wayne Rooney and what a blammer is, and in the next edition, we will be catching up to review the way forward for sport coming through COVID. Welcome, Tosh. And I want to kick off with my usual question. What was your childhood experiences like in sport? Well, they were, for me, and, you know, you've got to remember that we weren't as privileged as the as the modern day sports uh, athlete, uh, John. But my, my sport in life, you know, coming out of school at 3.30, you know, you'd get home, you'd, you'd grab a quick sandwich and you'd be out there until dark, banging on the door for your mates, just playing footy. Obviously, no computers in there. But we were on the, what we would call the Ola. And I don't know whether you know what the Ola is, but, you know, it was waste ground, a rubble site where the houses had been demolished and they'd be all mains sticking up, gas mains yeah. at the end. Then they would be like a cobbled piece, what used to be the road. And then it would go to concrete where they'd knock down maybe the a factory floor or something, or the bombs had knocked it down because it wasn't that, that long yeah. after the war. And we would play footy from one end to, to the other. And we would be playing street games like uh, lamppost because nobody liked going in goal because you were diving on concrete. Not that one or two of them were, were comfortable doing that. The lamppost, the old gas post sticking up, we, we, was, the, was the goal. If you don't hit it, you don't score. You, you know, that, that was the goal. And we would can, go... Can you explain that game for the listeners? Because I've heard you explain it before and I loved it. So can yeah. you just explain what lampy is? Yeah. Like I say, like it used to, it used to be a... a a, a lamppost that lit up the street in the olden days. <laughs> they were uh, disused and we would play around it. And the object of the game was to hit the lamppost, you know, 25 centimetre wide post. You're, you're playing 20 aside, uh, 10, 20 aside. And you're playing on all, it's a normal game and you're moving the opposition around it. You don't realise just how difficult it was, but the scores would be, we'd, we'd stop at 20, 19. You'd scored yeah. 39 times you did this post. You developed the art of, uh, of doing it. But it was the it was the different surfaces, John. Mm. We were playing from what I would call a soilish mud bath onto cobbles, onto a concrete. And your touch and the ball bounce on the three different surfaces was an education in itself. And you didn't know you were learning and adapting as you were moving because you, you've got to be tactical in that as well, surely, to draw people away from the goal. But big time. What what also is involved is your, your dribbling skills and how you dealt with it because we weren't playing in organised football. So we would have maybe one or two fathers would stagger would be staggering home on a Sunday afternoon from, from the pub, <laughs> gives a game, and they used to go <laughs> pudding and beef. And pudding and beef, for those who <laughs> you know who might be familiar with that, they would whisper to each other, you be pudding, I'll be beef. Somebody would shout, we'll have beef. And whoever gave them the names of the beef, you know, you would have whatever and get on with it. And you'd be playing against older people, younger people, much, you know, so if I was maybe 11 at the time, might be playing with some eight-year-olds. But the oldest player might be your dad and any age in between. And these were taking no prisoners in the game. They'll say, you've got the ball. They'd cut you in half. So yeah. you had to have a confidence to dribble past them, but you also had the intelligence to say, I'm not quite ready for this person yet, and move the ball on. 
And I just I just found it was an environment that was socially good. I mean, you know, we never had the, the restraints of a coach or a team manager or whatever, particularly at, the, at that age. We, we we just got on with it. And, yeah. I, and I think the you know the most popular player was the person who had the new ball or, or a ball that actually had air in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was the most popular guy. The real me. essence of street soccer, no rules. Oh, yeah. Well, there was rules, but you made them. them like, you know, he can't score. If you've got a, a Billy Wiz there, who's, who's yeah. the oldest player, you'd say he can't score. And the other one used to be no blammers. Go on. No no blammers. You can't shoot hard. You know, when these older people <laughs> got it, used to just, that was a blammer and they'd be amazing. So you're looking more for the finesse of finding that yeah. by a good you, play. You would yeah. find that, you know, the balance that people had in those in those days, yeah. you know, were self-taught, you know, and the conditions uh, helped develop it. And, you know, John Bailey, won the league with Everton. He was one of the regulars down there. You know, yeah. John used to come down and play, you know, they, they were great days. Okay. What drew you into coaching then? Well, drawing me into coaching was that I got to the end of playing and or I thought I got to the end of playing. The team asked me to be player manager because I was always a little bit vocal on the field and led by example. It never says I attitude, you know, it's not over till the, till the final whistle. He asked me to be a player manager. I, I said, yeah, on, on a whim. And then realised that, you know, I'm going to start talking to people. I've got to tell them about how to play. I better do something. And it was for the following season. So give me a bit of breathing space. Went on to uh, an FA course, the old prelim. And I went on it and I bumped into a coach called Keith Mayer. And I went there for the co- for the coaching experience. But on the end of the first day, I wanted to be him because he, he enthused me and he sh- I learned so much in a week, John, that, you know, like I was saying just a few minutes ago, uh, I thought I was retiring. I actually played at a higher level after being on the coaching course and the, and the information, the the dribbling stuff, not like this is a, a Stanley Matthews move or this is a George Best move, wherever the yeah. players were in the day. Simple things like, you know, Checking your shoulders, have that awareness and move away from people, how to create space. And I took that. And within, honestly, within two months, I was playing. And, you know, I want to make this drum this up to sound really bigger than what it was. <laughs> well, two months later, I was playing against Man United at the cliff. We, we went up there, it was for Marine Reserves. And they played in what was the old A and B league for 18s or youth players coming through the pro clubs pre-academy days. And yeah. pro clubs, the likes of Everton, Man United, they would be mixed up with your Preston, um, Burnley, who weren't in those top tiers then. So the professional teams were getting a mixture of abilities and types, styles of football to play against. So Marine couldn't match the... Um, the technical expertise of Man United, but I tell you what, we could kick harder, <laughs> uh, we could tackle harder, yeah. and that was a great learning curve for Man United players. But yeah. what also a good learning curve for us because we wanted to play like them uh, from having that mixture of teams, which they took away. And yeah. to this day, I can't understand the way they've created an under-23 league. And it's a soft league. They're putting the 23 teams in these the Caribbean Cup and yeah. they're playing different types of opposition. They had it. Now they yeah. threw it away. But like I say, I played, played against Man United, played against Everton, uh, and you know, started getting paid to, to play footy. And I'm thinking, why haven't I bumped into a coach? Or why wasn't I given this help at yeah. 11, 15? Was I being a professional footballer? I'm not saying for that for one minute. 
But could I have played at a higher level for a longer period of time? And the answer is yeah. Coaching was more of an amateur thing and you've done it out of the love of the sport. And you're looking now, there's so many professional coaches, even here in Calgary, who, again, are rewarded for going through that education. And I know certainly with myself, looking at my own development, it certainly made me think about the game and and how to play it. You've worked around the world and through Europe. And just for the listeners, certainly in Canada, what do you see on the main differences between how the game's played in Europe and in Canada? Well, first of all, the players is the it's the only sport um, still yeah. in, in in Europe. It it is the number one. They don't get sidetracked. These players who feel they've got that avenue, and if I'm honest, even the players whose legs are on the wrong hips, they don't seem to get sidetracked until the reality that they're not going to make it hits them. Yeah, and that's not until fourteen, fifteen. Yeah. We could be suffering from not playing the sports because I do believe the other sports in North America transferable. We're missing out on on that part. So it's not, you know, I'm I'm not a, a big believer that you had to be at an academy and you have to be in football yeah. to be the best player. I think the way that's happened in the academies is detrimental to some players' development because they're not using the rugby skills. They're not using the eye-hand coordination of cricket and tennis or whatever to be able to enhance their... So, so when did children in the academy really focused or driven to give up other sports? What age are they encouraged to specialise? I mean, I think it's obscene, John. I mean, those academy players now, it, it's a bit like name that tune. You know, yeah. you start off naming that tune and I can name that in 20 notes and somebody says, well, yeah. I'll name that in 19. We're down to four now. I understand it because, I, you know, I was part of the process that if you don't get them at four, somebody will get them at five. Well, where does it end? I don't believe you can coach, you can work no. with, with four-year-olds. I mean, I'm, I'm just not not having it. I think that you can institutionalise. I mean, there's some kids yeah. been in programmes for 10, 12 years and come that fateful 16th birthday when the clubs have to make a decision on them, they're, they're given a month to go and prove themselves. Yeah. And you're thinking, you've had 12 years. So, what, what you know, just going back to your question is, I do feel that the dedication to the one sport is, is significant. I do believe we're more technical in terms of dribblers and uh, understand the game more, because we do watch it more in, in Europe. I, I would I would say that's fair, although it is growing significantly in the in the US. But what was a swap? I think, and this is where I have an experience, you know, because I worked in the, the North Americas for, for six years, you know, they do believe potentially with coach development and the player, the basic player yeah. base point that you've got in, in North America with the mental attitudes, with the physiques, with the sport, mental sense they've got. If you teach them technique and game understanding, you've got a great team. So really, I mean, one of the, one of the keys certainly for Canada is when this generation of players become coaches rather than hockey parents becoming coaches. Again, I sense it and even watching the Cavalry, it was great seeing that small but developing culture of children just going to a game and, and being in that environment. You know, I can remember taking my son to games back home in England and he loved to sit there and absorb the, the shapes and the patterns that the players formed tactically and really we can't see enough of that here because you're watching on a television Yeah, and I loved what you said when we were together up in Sherwood Park about the 13th man <laughs> and we we need to create that supporter base to, to watch yeah. um, and develop the game so we need to become better students and observers of the game yeah. if you say that's yeah. fair without, 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 I think that's the we've got to move away from what we did and what we were taught and without being dis, 
disrespectful. Like you're saying, the hockey and the, the soccer mom, the soccer dad getting involved, their passion down what they taught. Well, the game's moved on yeah. in, in many, many ways. And some of it is relevant as the way the game's developing. So again, it's a question I have got. How do you see coaching and the game has changed? You know, what has been the most significant change that you've seen in your career? The game's so much faster now that coaches have to be switched on and, and the concentration levels of, of a coach now, you know, you can't just wait till half time to make changes and stuff like that, you know. So, yeah. the, the, the coaching, from, from where I came, John, when I look back at that prelim, and I look at the players that's coming through. More players were coming through the older process. The information that I was given on that course was for the individual, yeah. you know, the technical work. And, and like I say, it's the way it's helped me in, you know, two or three words. And they lifted me, you know, to, yeah. to a, a different playing level. So that individual technique and the information this is that, that we did, I don't see that. I see more of a team culture now. Academies are teams. And that team, when you, when you look at the purpose of academies, the whole team's not going to be lifted up and placed to be anybody's first team. Yeah. It's the one within that team or the one or two. You've got to develop the, the individual. And what's happened, I feel, is that in a race to, to be a, a level with, with, with other European countries, because the FA got lambasted for, for not having enough coaches of a certain level, or the rush was, let's get more coaches qualified. Well, they actually improved the quantity. I'm not so sure that we've maintained the quality yeah. of, of deliverance. And, you know, people can agree or, or disagree with me. Yeah. And I do feel coaches are not maximising players' potential. Just to, to backtrack a little there, you were saying that a lot of the coaching is now focused on the tactical side of the game in England yeah, yeah. and not the player. And it's, it's an interesting one because I still see the game as an individual sport played within a team. And like, how can that be realigned? And, and should it be? Should, should we be focusing more on that player? Well, let me put this scenario to you then. Realign it. I'm going to think I'm a dribbler. You, you know, let, let's say I'm, I'm your best dribbler. Okay, we're all playing two touch. I think I just, well, I don't do two touch. Barcelona, you, you know, they play Messi in. You don't put Messi on two touch. Ronaldo, you play Ronaldo in. You can't play on two touch. He's not going to play on two touch. So it's, he, an, it's an interesting one because just even watching the show on Mourinho where he said, I don't coach players, I coach teams. The modern coach needs to have a real blend of and sense of both of that tactical and the, the individual work now yeah you know I'm hammering the nail all my night with that point to put it's everybody good. in touch when you've got when you've got a Messi and Ronaldo you ask the players who the best ask, ask your team who's the best players in the world they won't say Ramos um, Harry Maguire let's just yeah. they'll say Kane they'll say Ronaldo they'll say Messi Neymar Mbappé all exciting players all the do something with the ball so yeah. if that's what they want to be shouldn't you as a clever coach, work back from, well, if I get them to what they want to do, I'm messy. Everybody's dribbling, so we're all messy. Okay, here's the next practice. How do we get messy on the ball? You have to pass me. Oh, well, we better improve our passing. Now, nah, okay, so half years of passing, get messy on the ball. Yeah. And you drive messy. And you work, and my mind works in, and we know from yeah. experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it, to me, it's, you take your, when we do, do these two touch stuff or one touch, and I know it has to be done, 
but not at such a young age. The very thing yeah. that these players have been identified as being. And now you tell them not to do it. I talk often about the long-term player development and really that team aspect, the mind is really focused around 10 or 12. You know, before that, children are growing up and it's all about me and my own development rather than passing and sharing the ball. So we're trying to encourage that until they're 11 or 12 when that peer evaluation of it comes to the fore. And it's, it's a great conversation for coaches here to consider because we, we're trying to change the culture where we had those teams at four, five, six. And we, we, we've got to get away from that in order to, like you say, develop players. I wondered then quickly, if you could define your coaching philosophy an individual developer are trying to equip a player uh, re- regardless of athleticism give them all the tools and be honest with them I suppose you know the, sh- the smaller you are the, ne- the closer your backside is to the ground the more technical development you know you- you're going yeah. to need those other skills of awareness so I like to think I develop players the individual but again I try to develop them in, if you're six foot four and you can run like the wind, it's a different development process to four foot eleven. How do you how do you develop them? Because they can't be on the same individual program. Because one's needs are different to others, you know. So as, as a coach, you 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 look at the individual player and try and fulfil their potential. Yeah, and then you you say, well, how does that grow in the bigger scheme? The best. 11 players technically and the practices of quick thinking and, and th- we're the best team. We, we solved the, we solved the problem and the, we, and, and that was on boys and girls. So I know, I know, I know it works. And I'm not throwing bouquets at, at, at myself because I was helped by others in the program, but we delivered a program that catered for the individual that after three years, John, worked. And it surpassed you know, the athleticism and the tactics. Yeah, honestly, yeah, I mean, not everybody's blessed with a team of athletes unless you're at the high, the higher level you get, the, obviously yeah. the better standards you could. But we're talking grassroots yeah. and we've got to be careful that we don't turn a potential player away because we want them to play like we want them to play. Yeah. And this isn't a soapbox thing. They should be allowed to play how they want to play and we should be just educating them a little bit like you beat seven people now and you lost it on the eighth person, what do you yeah. think you could have done? I could have passed. Well, then, as they get older and mature, you're not taking away the dribbling skills. You're just asking them to, there might be a better solution. It's, well, it's an interesting one because, I, like I said, talking to a lot of coaches who've gone through the mill, we all started with that command style. This is the game. This is what you need to do. And it's now, what do you think you should do in yeah. order to accelerate that learning and understanding of the players? In, in terms of that and the questioning, how important are mental skills within your coaching and what are some of the techniques that you commonly use when you're coaching athletes? I, I believe that a positive attitude is everything. I, th- I try not to be talking negative to anybody. I, I just don't. I can see good in everything. Honestly, you know, what, what would an, an example be like? Um, do you want to play like Messi? Well, right now you are a Messi player. Yeah. You know? Now I'm going to ask you again. Do you want to be a Messi player or Messi the player? And they're thinking about it. And I'm trying to do this visualization in them. Would, would Messi have done that? No, he might have done this. Or, so I try to use little bits like keeping the positive attitude. Um, my bad. You, you know, and uh, I, I didn't play well there. And I don't use those words. You know, you know, I, I did that wrong, Tosh, didn't I? Never did it wrong. We just can do it better. There's a better okay. way to do to a better yeah. way to do it. When I'm practicing, 
I say, only the good players do it like this. And, you know, we try to demo and um, the rest of you can do what you want. And suddenly everyone wants to be this mirror image of the good player. And, and I just use, I'm like these little, these little triggers, words. And sometimes, because we've been doing it for long enough, John, you, you don't realise what you've said until you sit back and you think, what the hell? That had a massive effect. One word had a massive effect on, on him and her. And I just find... Keeping it positive, not, and I'm not one to hide behind, you know, we've been smashed 6 0. We did well. Well, we, did, we didn't do well, but we didn't do bad. You know, we could have done things better. Um, did we move the ball as, as, as quickly or as slowly as, you know, well, let's, let's return to the drawing board. And I try yeah. to measure the performances by the, the pluses. I, I use the word, uh, you're in credit. So if you're take dribbling past me, 10 times in a game. Did I stop you six times? You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm too incredible because you only got past me four times. Yeah. Now, the four times that you got past me, you scored off. You know, <laughs> but that's not the point. I can, we, if we can get six, we can get you seven. Now you're only scoring three. Now I'll get it's eight. It's setting those baselines. Yeah, those little individual targets. In order to do that, John, you've got to get trust with the players. The players have got to trust you. I just feel that you know, when you go in and you say, this is how it's going to be and we're going to do this, the players do look at it's a, a psychological barrier that's there that they don't know you. So they're not going to go down your road because you haven't proved anything. You know, yeah. they haven't done anything to gain their trust. So I, I just chip away at one or two things that you know is going to happen in the game before it's yeah. kicked off. And then it's only that has happened. And they're looking at it as you, and, and you just... Win them over with with good practice, and I think that is, so, is massive. So again, collaboration creates that trust, and I love the idea of the cue. Was quite often I'll I'll tell the kids to to make a Toblerone so they get a triangular shape, and not like we have in here. We have Tim Hortons where the kids do a lineup, so we get yeah. our midfield standing in a line, and I'm asking for a Toblerone so they get our understanding through an image to spread out into the right shapes rather than me shouting where's the triangle because that it doesn't impact it doesn't have that feeling for the, the players quickly then and talking through the individual experiences and developing that can you just explain to to listeners what was the main difference between Wayne Rooney and many of the contenders who maybe said I played with Rooney as a 15 year old speed of thought I mean he, he had the, the attributes of, of physique and athleticism and but his speed of thought I mean to me speed of thought is speed of play I mean you can put me on one touch but because I can't think quickly I'm forced into having two or three touches because I haven't seen the picture Wayne's vision, you know, not a young age, you know, is unbelievable. He's seen it, but he was actually making the pass as he's seen it. So there was as minimal delay in seeing and executing as as he could be, in, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to ask, so, so how, how did he get that? And was that partly due to maybe a self-belief and confidence that it was the right thing to do? Because you see a lot of players stall on, should I? And by the time they've said, should I, it's gone. Well, I mean, the practice Wayne had, I mean, he was, I mean, he didn't have to go out looking for good players to play against because he was in a very talented, his three brothers would give him a game. You know, John and, and, and Graham as three brothers. He would go out on the street and this scenario of playing with older players yeah. and younger players, the older players made you play quicker. So this ground that they were playing on, it wasn't the, the beauty of 4Gs now and, and, and these supreme playing services. Yeah. I actually think it's detrimental to player development because if a snooker player, he takes a tiny bit of fluff or a pool player would take a tiny... There's, what's he taking? A hair? Because it would spoil the run of the ball. 
Well, imagine taking your eye off the ball in the environment that I grew up and Wayne grew up playing yeah. on these concrete. The ball's gone. So that sixth sense, we aren't developing players where watch the ball onto your foot and watch it off. You've got to do that. But on AstroTurf and 3Gs, you can take a, a longer look, yeah. shall we we'll see, because you know that ball's coming through. And so he was more, more of a result of the environment that he grew up in. Without that, that sixth sense. And yeah. like I say, the opposition being older, being quicker, yeah. who didn't want him to look good, made him think quicker. And, it, and, it, and it's not rocket science. And as coaches, sometimes we're guilty of trying to reinvent the wheel. Futsal. There's a, there's a wheel craze on futsal. I was yeah. playing futsal at five. I was playing with a ball with no air at it on a concrete piece of 60 by 40 area. Decide, seven aside. Well, it was highly technical. Everyone was, they could all do it. We yeah. could think quickly. But now with the, the moving players into these environments and I'm giving them too, too many rules. Overhead height, no overhead height. Well, we, we go overhead in the game. Why are you banning me from taking one of my passion options away and my technical development away? The opportunity yeah. for me to glide over his head is that part of the game's oh. taken out. And I, I'm sorry, John, if it, if it sounds soapbox and I'm, I'm up on that. It's not. We complain about the time we get with the players. We don't get long enough with them. You've got them for now and a half and you're taking away half the game because you're not letting them play overhead. Yeah. That means you're not controlling any aerial balls, by the way. That means yeah. you're not controlling any on your thigh because they're not coming down. No, I agree. I, again, I, I like the idea that whenever I work with an athlete, whatever sport, you try and recreate what they're going to do in the competition within the practice. Yeah, prepare them to play. I'd like to thank everyone for listening today, and I hope you've enjoyed the insights from Tosh. As I said, this is a two-part edition, and in the next edition, we will be looking at some serious fun, coaxing within coaching, and then also the way forward for sport coming out of COVID. So please tune in next Tuesday, and let's enjoy more of the insights of Tosh. Tosh.